Wait, wait. I'm, I think I'm getting it. C- can you hear me? Wait, what? Ah, wait, wait. Here it is. <clears throat> this is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. Okay, so it's early in the morning right now, and maybe your alarm has just gone off, and you're listening to me talking while you drift in and out of sleep. Or maybe you're making breakfast, or washing dishes, or whatever. doesn't matter. No matter what you're doing while you listen to the radio, and no matter whose voice you're hearing, what's happening when you listen to the radio is something of a miracle. Or at least it can seem that way. Even for those of us who make radio for a living, how it all works can be a bit of a mystery. As far as I understand, there is a little man, or possibly a super-intelligent mouse, in the radio who has a really excellent capacity for making music and imitating voices. Frankly, getting my mind around any other possibility of how all this might be coming out of a box that is miles away from the station is pretty much not going to happen. For some people, though, understanding the technology is not the problem. Getting it into people's hands is... One way they're looking to do that is through something called Low Power FM, which we will learn more about in just a minute. First, though, I want to introduce my guest on today's show. As a grad student doing fieldwork for her dissertation, Christina Dunbar-Hester spent countless hours hanging out with radio activists and other people who love to tinker with audio and audio equipment. Dunbar-Hester is a visiting research fellow this year at Fordham's Donald McGannon Communication Research Center. I asked her to come in and give me a crash course on all the radio stuff that I've been hearing about for ages but haven't really understood. Low-power FM, the micro-broadcasting movement, pirate radio, and not least, why we should care about all this stuff. Christina Dunbar-Hester, welcome. Thank you. Now, just to begin, um, just at the most basic level, tell me what low-power FM is and what its history is. Low-power FM radio is a legal designation in the U.S. It's radio stations that can be up to 100 watts, which is very small scale compared to a radio station like this one. They only reach a few miles from the site of transmission at best. And they're also non-commercial stations. A simplified history is that there's always been a portion of the radio spectrum devoted to non-commercial use and Starting in the 1940s, those were called Class D stations, and they were often given to educational stations. In the late 1970s, the Federal Communications Commission stopped issuing these Class D licenses. And so if you were a small community group or a school group or a church group, you couldn't get a radio license. And in the 80s and 90s, particularly the 90s, there was what was called a micro-broadcasting movement, which was people doing unlicensed broadcasting as civil disobedience because they wanted access to the airwaves. And then in 2000, the FCC started granting licenses, the LPFM, low-power FM licenses, again. And so as of now, there are about 650 new of these radio stations on the air. Why did they stop granting these licenses then in the late 70s? One of the issues was that the FM band had become a lot more interesting to people. In the 40s and 50s, and even earlier, the AM band was a lot more popular, and most of the radio stations someone would listen to were in on, on AM. And then I believe it was in the 60s, the FCC, may have been the 50s, said that if you had an AM and an FM station, which many companies had both, You had to program them separately, which before that wasn't the case. And so if you had one station that used to broadcast the same content 
on AM and FM, then you started to have to find something new to put on FM. That's one reason. Another is that as technology improved, people became more interesting, interested in doing more with the FM band. Basically, technically, you can get better sound, hi-fi, stereo things on FM that you can't do on AM. And then the last reason has to do actually with National Public Radio, which was started in around 1970. And NPR was interested in you know, forming a network of the community stations. Or so they started some new stations and also wanted to incorporate existing stations. And so that was another reason they sort of lobbied the FCC to stop giving out new licenses. And so that's one of the reasons why. Could you explain a little bit more about that? Well, basically NPR, you know, they had visions of being a national network. And so some of the stations that were out there, they wanted to incorporate them in the network. And they viewed, some people at NPR viewed some of the community stations as sort of competition for them, I think, um, even though I don't think that that's how they phrased it. And so some of the small community stations were told by the FCC, you have a couple of options. You can either increase your power and some of those stations did that and became either freestanding community stations and non-commercial community stations. Some of them increased power and became NPR affiliates, and then some of them didn't. So tell me the story of how this, um, called it microbroadcasting, how that whole movement got started and why it became what it was. My understanding of this, the two sort of most colorful and... Uh, sort of popularly told stories about this are that the earliest sort of person who's credited with starting this movement is a person named Mbana Kantako. And in the late 80s, I want to say 86 or 87, in Springfield, Illinois, he started broadcasting from a public housing unit where he lived. And I'm not sure what the name of the station was when it started, but it came to be known as WTRB standing for uh, W Tenants Rights Board. And so he did things like very local community announcements and sort of political announcements. And um, his idea was that the public housing unit needed to be sort of served by media for the people in that and that it was sort of a perfect place to have, you know, all kinds of announcements relevant to people living there. And so it really didn't matter. In fact, it was totally great that the signal didn't go very far because it didn't really need to reach anybody outside that community. He was doing that for quite some time and eventually got into a legal dispute with the FCC because it is not legal to broadcast without a license. And so he was pretty inspirational to a lot of people. The other person who sort of high profile about this in the 90s is a man named Stephen Dunifer, who was broadcasting in Berkeley, California. And as I understand it, before he even went on the air, he had consulted with, the name escapes me, but some sort of public interest communications law group about his rights. And so he was on the air. Um, I think it was Free Radio Berkeley, I think. He was doing that for a few years. And then before too long, he was sort of caught out and told to stop it. And he said no. And so the FCC took him to court, and in a sort of embarrassing moment for the FCC, the Ninth Circuit in California said, actually, you haven't made your case strongly enough, come up with more. And then eventually Donifer was shut down. And if you broadcast illegally, it's a civil 
matter, not a criminal one. So you'll basically be told to stop and then you could be fined. And if you didn't after that, you could be eventually sent to jail. But it's not a question of being incarcerated immediately. So I think some of the people who did this made the calculation that the risk was very much worth it to stand up for the things that they believed in. So both these cases, Kentaco and Dunifer, were very inspirational to people in the 90s who called themselves, you know, the microbroadcasting movement. And the people that I have met through this work are mostly sort of younger than these folks and sort of were doing this in the 90s, but were very directly like in dialogue and inspired by the stories of these two folks. So even the two people that you just mentioned are sort of strange bedfellows. There's sort of a guy who is doing this because he wants to get information out to the building where he lives. And then you have a guy who's doing it as an act of civil disobedience. Did you find these kinds of like disparate people coming together in this movement a lot? Well, these two people are actually more similar. I would say that there are other people who, um, yeah, are more disparate. Part of what was at issue with both the Dunifer and Kentaco cases was whether or not the FCC has the right to regulate whether people can broadcast at all. And so in that, I think they're pretty consistent because they both argued that as individuals with right to free speech and given that the radio spectrum in the U.S. is defined as a public resource that the government you know, regulates, they both made the argument that they had the right to broadcast without government interference. Other people, I think, are not this sort of fully radicalized, if you will, about this issue. And we're more arguing maybe that the government did have the right to regulate the airwaves, but that they did not have the right to withhold licenses from people who wanted them. And so, yeah, I would say fairly strange bedfellows to begin with in the issue of broadcasting rights, because it really does unite people across the political spectrum. Because by the 90s, it really turned into a sort of small, local, non-commercial, community-based issue versus that of big media and corporate media, consolidated media. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. We are talking this week on the show about micro-broadcasting. My guest is Christina Dunbar-Hester. Dunbar-Hester is a visiting research fellow at Fordham's Donald McGannon Communication Research Center. Let's return now to that conversation. So how did this go from being uh, several people to being a big movement, and what were the issues that sort of made people be attracted to it as a movement? In some ways, the government kind of really created the climate for this kind of movement to flourish. And the other big, big sort of thing historically was the Telecommunications Act of 1996. So if one can think back to the early 90s, and there was a lot of excitement about a new thing called the internet. People were really enthralled by the internet and sure it was going to change our lives and change our society. And um, this is not the only reason, but this was one reason why the big broadcast media companies were worried about their future. Basically, they said there's this new medium and there are going to be other new media. And in order to sort of stay current and stay profitable, we think there need to be some changes to, you know, how we're allowed to operate. And so in 1996, the government listened to them and Congress passed the Telecommunications Act of 96, which allowed, particularly for radio, really dramatic changes in 1995, if you wanted to own radio stations, you could own 
up to 40 nationally. So if you had 40, you couldn't buy anymore. And when this act was passed in 1996, you could own up to eight in a single market and a totally unlimited number nationally. So that meant that by the early 21st century, 2000s, whatever we're calling this, one company, Clear Channel Communications, owned over 1,200 radio stations. And so 40, 1,200, what is that, a 300%, 3,000%, 3,000% increase, I think. We'll have to do the math later. So really dramatically different. And other media companies were also allowed to sort of consolidate by one another, the argument being that in order to sort of stay economically viable, they needed to be able to do this. So this really, as it continued, began to concern a lot of different kinds of people. And I think that one could certainly argue that by the late 90s, which is when the FCC began to consider reissuing these licenses again, a lot of people were pretty convincingly making an argument that localism in media and broadcasting in particular had been hurt by these regulations that allowed companies to own each other because it used to be the case that, you know, you could hear local news or local reporting in your town or city about things happening in your town or city, but increasingly the model became to really kind of centralize. A number of people were very concerned about this and the FCC was sort of responsive to this issue and did feel that localism had been damaged and that one of the best things about radio as a medium is it can be extremely local. And so that's, I think, what really kind of ignited a lot of people's sort of passion about this issue was that they wanted access to media and instead they saw it going completely the opposite direction and becoming very much less a sort of tool for citizens to gain access to something that was in their communities that could allow democratic participation or even just really local things like broadcasting of local music or, you know, current events or highly localized announcements like when and where the school board meeting will be held. That kind of thing is what a lot of people saw as missing. And, you know, they really wanted to change that. It seems like a lot of different kinds of people were attracted to this. Who who was attracted to the whole microbroadcasting movement? Which what sorts of people? Microbroadcasting I would say probably attracted a pretty diverse number of people and I guess here I could talk a little bit about pirate radio because these are pirates in the sense of being unlicensed. Although microbroadcasting is more of kind of a subset of unlicensed broadcasters because some people have always done unlicensed broadcasting for whatever reason. In fact, the earliest reason that the government started regulating the radio spectrum in the first place goes back to around the Titanic disaster. And supposedly they received reports that the disaster wasn't as bad as it was going to be. And by they, I mean, I guess the Navy and other people trying to do a rescue operation. I'm not sure it was ever made clear where these erroneous transmissions came from, but it became seen as one reason why the government should intervene in licensing. But something that's sort of more humorous is prior to that, I mean, a big user of this communications was the military, the Navy, because they wanted to be able to communicate between ships. And so we're talking very first decade of the 20th century. And something people used to do back then was just play tricks on the Navy. Basically, people with 
you know, radio transmitters and equipment would do things like broadcast obscene messages to the Navy in Morse code. The government didn't like that very much and found it annoying and leveraged the Titanic disaster as a reason to start licensing. So I guess the point here is that people have done unlicensed broadcasting. They've done it for a number of reasons. People wanted just to play the music they like. People wanted to, you know, talk politics. People wanted to broadcast, like, religious things. There have been people who would do stuff like broadcast sermons from international waters or from just across the border in Mexico. And all of that could be classified as pirate broadcasting. Microbroadcasting, rather, is something that's kind of distinct and is more tied to the values of free speech and citizen access to media and sort of democratic discourse. So microbroadcasting is kind of a subset of unlicensed or pirate broadcasting. But the microbroadcasters that I've met often are pretty interesting, you know, folks who do stuff like in the 90s, they would do things to protest the FCC. And one of the things that they did was they actually went outside the FCC with a transmitter in a lunchbox and broadcast illegally into the FCC in protest. And they had built the transmitters themselves. That was kind of another thing that my project looks at is that a lot of these people have a very sort of hands-on relationship with technology. And it's pretty easy to use, which is another reason why radio is attractive to them. Pretty easy to build a transmitter. It's pretty easy to put together audio equipment that is not as sophisticated as what's in this studio, but it'll work. You have like these, you have sort of radical um, people who are very, you know, who were sort of doing it for protest reasons. Were there other people who sort of got on the microbroadcasting thing? Um, Yes, definitely. Some of these stations were just really diverse in trying to reflect the communities that they were based in. Um, The one I'm most familiar with was based in Philadelphia, and they had a show sort of about prison issues and sort of talking about issues that people face in the criminal justice system, education in prisons, basically issues about incarceration and the criminal justice system, language programming. This station that was in Philadelphia had, in the neighborhood that it was located, a lot of people from East Africa. And so there were people broadcasting in Eritrean and Amharic and so could talk about whatever people wanted to know or needed to know in those languages so people could hear them. Um, Politics, public health, music, I mentioned, probably obviously these stations really attract people whose interests in music are diverse and not reflected on the sort of bigger radio stations in the areas they're located. One of these LPFM stations that I witnessed going on the air was just outside of Nashville. They went on the air in 2005. And something they were really excited about, one of the folks there was interested in playing sort of old country music and bluegrass and things that he said weren't on the sort of big stations that played mostly newer country music. And he thought that in Nashville it was really tragic that you couldn't have the sort of whole depth of music from that region historically. Um, But also other kinds of music. They also have, you know, punk shows and ska and another station that the West Philadelphia activists helped put up was in Opelousas, Louisiana. And that's a place that's famous for Zydeco music. So they were going to play a lot of Cajun and Zydeco music on that station. Yeah. And also in Philadelphia, the station had public health stuff, news, community announcements, music, that kind of stuff. 
Someone was just telling me recently that one of the neatest things about community radio, too, is that you can get people really interested in supporting a station who come from all different sort of walks of life. And, you know, everyone's got their own viewpoint. They all want to sort of talk for an hour a week or something. But then the station itself can be sort of a clearinghouse for people who have even completely opposing politics or something to kind of come together and they'll share the goal of keeping the station running because they want an outlet. So, yeah, I guess the big point is that there is no single constituent or voice on these stations. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. This morning at 7.30, it's Cityscape with George Bodarchy. This morning, urban archaeologists talk about their most significant New York finds. That's ahead this morning on Cityscape. This morning on Fordham Conversations, we are talking about micro-broadcasting and the people who love it. One such group is the Prometheus Radio Project. They are a Philadelphia-based nonprofit group that Christina Dunbar-Hester looked at for her research. Prometheus is a fairly well-known group in the radio world, but I've never been entirely sure what it is that they do. I asked her to tell me more about them and about her experiences with them. Prometheus's specific history is that they are a group in Philadelphia who currently do sort of a combination of advocacy and technical stuff, all related to these low-power radio stations and community radio stations. Their history was that they had a pirate collective in Philadelphia in the 90s that was actually shut down by the FCC in 1997. And the way they tell it is that the day after this happened, like any good collective, they spent the next day yelling at each other about why it had happened. And then they said, where can we go from here? And the timing of it is important because it was right around this time that the FCC started to kind of say, hey, maybe these folks have a point. Maybe localism is being hurt and maybe we should reconsider whether or not we want to grant this kind of license. And so right around then, Prometheus transformed from being a broadcasting collective to sort of scrappy little nonprofit in a basement. So what they started doing was going around and helping people fill out licenses or learn how to fill out licenses so that when the FCC said, we're now going to accept licenses, people knew how to do it and wouldn't have so many questions. They also, you know, sort of were available during that whole process and helped people apply for stations. They don't broadcast anymore and they don't sort of do content or whatever, but they do about um, half sort of work in Washington on legislative stuff and you know, working with other consumer groups or media groups about sort of campaigns that are of interest to everybody. And then they do about half technical work building radio stations. And they hold these really neat events called barn raisings, which is a reference to the, I guess, sort of Amish um, or rural practice of, you know, my barn burned down, I need a new barn, I can't do it myself. So I'll invite the whole town and we'll all cook food together and put up the barn. And so the radio station is actually pretty similar to that. Everybody comes and cooks food and does carpentry and lays wiring. And over the course of a weekend, you know, Friday night there isn't a radio station and Sunday night they flip a switch and this new station can go on the air. And so they've done, I don't know, maybe 10 or 12 of those, maybe 13 since 2000. You participated in something called Geek Group. Mm -hmm. Uh, Tell me about that. Geek Group is basically a space where people get together and build things. 
And a lot of it is electronics-based, although not exclusively. But when I was there, it was primarily related to radio. And it was sort of, well, we have this piece of equipment and it doesn't work, or we want to build something because we need it, and sort of we'll get together and and work on that. And so that was something that would happen about once a week. And basically, yeah, tinkering with, with hardware and trying to figure out why things don't work, which can be very, very slow if you don't know what you're doing. But it's explicitly a space for people who know relatively more and people who know relatively less to come together. And so unlike a group of people who are just trying to fix something to make it work and don't really care about spending the time to teach new people, it's a space where you're invited to show up and ask questions and say, how does this work? Let me try to fix it. You know, teach me how to solder, teach me how to use a multimeter, whatever. And so, um, yeah, it was kind of explicitly a place for empowerment about technical skill and teaching. Why is this sort of an important part of what these uh, media activists were doing? I think it's important because, as probably many of us have experienced, technology can be kind of intimidating. And people can feel like, I don't really know how this works. If something's broken, you take it somewhere else to get it fixed. Maybe you think about throwing it away or throwing it out the window. And it's sort of viewed as something not everybody knows how to do. And so the idea is that people can learn how to do this and they can learn how to sort of feel confident and put their hands on something and figure out how it works or put their hands on tools and feel like they helped make it. And the idea is, in addition to the fact that this can be kind of important to do this in a way that's very egalitarian and sort of welcoming to all kinds of different people and not just, you know, engineers or whoever, the idea is that more generally you will have the opportunity to sort of think about the nature of expertise and expert knowledge and maybe come to equate the kind of learning experience that you've had in this technical space of, hey, I can do this too with sort of other forms of decision-making, particularly related to the political process, and sort of feel like, you know, maybe this is a more democratic and egalitarian prospect than we might think it is. And, you know, my expertise matters, my voice matters, and that there's kind of an equation between technical skills and a sort of wider interest in democratic decision-making processes. And I think that's why the activists are so interested in promoting technical skills, in addition to the fact that they have fun and it's a place where you could easily spend an afternoon working on a project and when you finally get something to work, it can be very satisfying and you you know felt like you learned something. So. Now, why do these people care so much about radio? That's a great question. I guess a better question is why does anybody care about radio? Um, and that's another interesting thing about this project is anyone I talk to, especially anybody older than me, but really anyone who I say I'm working on the project about radio, they get pretty excited. I think a lot of people really do value radio and think that it is in many ways unique or special. People have memories of, you know, listening to the radio and having often, you know, kind of an intimate relationship with a favorite show or a favorite DJ or, you know, the thing that they listen to ritualistically in the car on the way home from work every day. Um, so kind of everybody relates to radio. 
Um, and so there's kind of a feeling that it can really do a lot and people are excited about it. The other reasons are, you know, less maybe emotional, but um, just it, it, it is local or it can be local. And that's not necessarily true with other forms of media. It's appealing because it's fairly easy to use and fairly easy to give people access to, as I was discussing. You don't need to be literate and you it's very inexpensive. It doesn't cost a whole lot to make radio. It costs very, very little to receive radio. And so that's a reason why, you know, as even though, you know, computers and the Internet are becoming more ubiquitous, there's still a barrier to access. A lot of people don't have them. Everybody has a radio set. And so it's still appealing in like a developed country like this one and other places in the world radios as one might imagine got even more sort of primacy as a way to communicate so i think those are a lot of reasons why radio is is important well christina dunbar hester thanks so much thank you nora flaherty christina dunbar hester is a visiting research fellow at fordham's donald mcgannon communication research center if you'd like to learn more about the prometheus radio project you can find their website at prometheusradio.org from WFUV, this has been Fordham Conversations. The show's available as a podcast at WFUV.org, and it's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can email us. Our address is Fordham Conversations at WFUV.org. We would, of course, love to hear from you. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thanks for listening, and have a fabulous weekend. This is WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org.